to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, this has been a busy week for news, and an interesting one, too. But it means we have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. So I want to start with something very local. I want to talk to you about racism, the word, and the implications. When I was a lot younger, I lived in Richmond, Virginia. Now you may remember Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy, and it was the Deep South even when I lived there. The anti-segregation laws, the civil rights laws, had just been passed. But the remnants of segregation and the bitterness between whites and blacks, that remained. I was there when it was all changing. And I remember signs in restaurants that said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. Well, that meant people of color, they could say, I'm sorry, we can't serve you here. That was Jim Crow. That was the rule of the South, if not the law of the South. And then I remember the laundromat signs that said colored, and that's what they called African Americans then, colored in uniform only. That meant that if a black person was in the laundromat, washing clothes, she had to be in uniform, which is to say the uniform of a domestic, a maid, and the clothes she was washing had better be the clothes of her employers, her white employers. It was also a time when a black man walking down the sidewalk would have to step off the sidewalk if a white person was coming toward him in the opposite direction. It was a nasty and a very ugly time. I didn't like living in the South then. It was awful. I was a white girl living in a society that was full of hateful prejudice against people whose only fault was the color of their skin, and for that they suffered every day. And it was racism, pure and simple. If you were black, you were not entitled to the same services and the same opportunities as white people. So here we are, many years later, and the term racism and racist, those terms are being tossed around freely, glibly, inappropriately, and hatefully. To accuse anybody who has offended you in some way of racism is supposed to be, it's supposed to be the worst thing you can say about somebody. He's a racist. But here's the thing, you know, that word, like any other word that is overused and misused, is already starting to lose its effectiveness, its meaning. 
And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit. What, what does racism mean? And how is it used inappropriately? And maybe a little of what we can do about it. Well, first of all, we can stop using it so broadly and so uh, loosely and so with, with so little effort. Every, you know, every time somebody criticizes a person of color, it doesn't matter what the criticism is. It doesn't matter if the person who's criticized has actually done something wrong. If he's accused or criticized or harassed, it's racism. It's all because of the color of his skin. But that's ridiculous, of course. Because just because a person is a person of color doesn't mean that he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he is not subject to criticism. It doesn't mean that he is above reproach. And so the idea that you can no longer criticize a person of color in this country without being called a racist, that's patently absurd. And it flies in the face of the very first amendment in our Bill of Rights, the freedom of expression makes it impossible to speak freely because somebody is likely to be offended and call you a racist. And that's the problem. No one among us, not one of us, not you, not I, none of us is above reproach. None of us has a history that is so pure that there is nothing in it that can be criticized. We all have made mistakes. We've all done some bad things, some more than others. The fact that we are, as a matter of happenstance, some of us are people of color, doesn't mean that those people get a free pass for whatever they do that is open to criticism. And what's happening now is that it doesn't matter what they did or what they said. If they are people of color, they are likely to react to criticism, however justified, as racism. And so we have ourselves in a serious situation because what starts as words becomes physical, which becomes violent. And that is where we find ourselves now. Among us are people who would refuse to others the right that they claim for themselves to speak freely and sometimes aggressively and sometimes with a great deal of vulgarity against people who disagree with them. They want the freedom of speech for themselves, but they are not willing to grant it to those with whom they don't agree. And this is finding itself not just in Twitter, although it's there, and not just on Facebook, although it's there, but it's becoming more and more manifest in the streets of our cities. 
and in the governments that run those cities, and most recently, in Congress, in the government that is responsible for upholding the Constitution of the United States, and in the halls of Congress, we are hearing not arguments for this bill or that, but accusations of the most vile kinds and deliberation over bills that are so vile they should never have been introduced in the first place. So when the four women in Congress who are developing such a huge reputation, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley are all shouting racism against the president who is critical of them, and with good reason. And in this case, color is really not the issue. And so by, by calling out their detractors as racists, they're avoiding the issue completely. The point isn't that they are being criticized for the color of their skin or because they are women of color. They're being criticized for what they say and do. And what they say and do is frankly obnoxious. It's repugnant. It's awful. It's anti-American. With all of their protestations that they love America and that this is their home and that this is the country that they love and so forth, nearly everything they are doing and saying is anti-American. And they do need to be called out for that regardless of the color of their skin. So I think as we watch the news and watch history unfolding before us, I think we need to be mindful that by overusing the attack phrase, he is a racist or she is a racist, I think we would be very well advised to pull back on the use of those words and only use them when they have meaning, when they are appropriate, and when they are correct before it leads to something much more dangerous. Okay, so now here's another story. So when the four women in Congress who are creating such an uproar because of their wild accusations and then protestations that any attack on them is racism, this is where we have to say enough is enough. Okay, so they're women of color. I'll accept that. We get that. This is not about the color of their skin. This is about what comes out of their mouths. Their actions and their words are reprehensible. And they need to be called out for it. And it has nothing, nothing to do with the color of their skin. When the president said that they should go back where they came from and fix the problems and the corruption there and then come back and tell us how to do it here, it was part of a whole statement. But they only took out the first part, that they should go back where they came from, meaning the countries of their family's origins. It was pretty clear to most of us 
but they took out the first sentence and forgot about the rest of it. They said that he told them to go back where they came from, and that was racism. It's a terrible story that we're dealing with now, and it's one that I think we really need to figure out quickly before it deteriorates into something much more serious and dangerous. So I think that we should be mindful that by weaponizing a word like racism, we are delivering a blow, a serious blow, to our constitutional right to free speech. Because that word, racism, is a barrier to free speech. It limits free speech. It obstructs and prevents free speech. And the reverse of that, which is interesting, is that by overusing the term, it will eventually lose its power and become ineffective. And they'll have to start looking for another term to beat their opponents with. And maybe they'll also have to find better arguments for their positions that depend on facts and figures and reality. Okay, here's a short take on a, on a story that's been very interesting in the news coming from the campaigns, this one from Bernie Sanders' campaign. He has been under fire because one of his campaign promises is that he will make sure that there is a national $15 an hour wage minimum and he was under fire because he is not paying his staff workers $15 an hour. So he just announced over the weekend that his campaign needs to cut hours that his staff works in order to be able to pay them $15 an hour. Now, this is really interesting because the argument against a minimum wage is that it forces small businesses, it forces everyone, but it's particularly small businesses who are impacted by it, it forces them to pay their workers a certain minimum wage that may be more than they can afford. Now, this is true in, even in franchises, but certainly in small companies with 10 to 15 employees. These small companies really cannot afford to pay their workers $15 an hour as a minimum. So what happens? What happens is that they have to cut hours or fire workers and reduce their ability to make their company successful. So what's happening with Bernie Sanders' campaign staff and his need to cut hours is exactly the argument that we have all been making over the years against a minimum wage, that forcing people to pay a wage that's higher than they can afford means a loss of hours, a loss of income, a loss of jobs. And Bernie Sanders' campaign is become the object lesson that this doesn't work. Now I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be right back, so stay where you are 
because I'm going to come back with some stories from overseas. Some of the breaking news of this past week that will take us to Iran and the Strait of Hormuz and to other parts of the Middle East where the temperature is rising rapidly. The United States and Iran have shot down each other's drones and Iran has attacked several large tankers carrying highly volatile materials and has now seized two British ships, one of which it has released, but the other is being held hostage in an Iranian port. All this is going on in the area of the Strait of Hormuz, and it doesn't look like things are going to settle down anytime soon. Iran is baiting the American eagle, and while the eagle is not interested in a new war, it is very clear that these attacks in international waters must be stopped one way or another. This is what we'll be talking about after the break, so stay tuned. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Patriots. Through his widely acclaimed poetry books, The Trump Chronicle, Ray Ray has preserved for us these historic events that have surrounded the first two years of the Trump presidency. His fervent and patriotic poems capture in real time what could have easily been lost or forgotten. The Trump Chronicle is available on Amazon or through the America Out Loud bookstore. Pick up a few of these memorable books for your library. They are a must-have for our MAGA movement. Let's support this important patriotic poet and show host so we can continue to read history through poetry. The conflict in the Middle East, that's an expression we've been hearing for years. And it doesn't seem to change. It doesn't seem to go away. It might be in Iraq or Iran or Pakistan. It might be in Israel, in Lebanon, in Gaza. But the situation today, the United States and the rest of the Western world is facing, is changing. And it's getting more dangerous every day. Iran is playing a game of chicken. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, And then the president declared, the United States declared the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which reports directly to the Ayatollah Khamenei, it declared them a terrorist organization. Now, we've never done that. We've never declared an arm of a foreign government a terrorist organization, but that's exactly what we did. And then... We put sanctions on some of Iran's leaders, including the Ayatollah Khamenei. And there were additional sanctions on certain kinds of products that Iran produces. And so 
we have put Iran in a very, very difficult economic position. This is not a bad thing because Iran funds some of the worst terrorist organizations, the most lethal terrorist organizations in the world, including Hezbollah and Hamas. Iran's economic situation is imploding and the amount of aid that it is able now to give to terrorists is becoming more and more limited. And so that brings us to the situation that we now find in the Middle East. And there's one more thing I need to explain. Iran is located on the east side of the entire length of the Persian Gulf, opposite Oman on the other side. And between these two countries is the Persian Gulf, which is a long, thin waterway that terminates in a bottleneck, which is called the Strait of Hormuz. This is a, a kind of U-shaped channel, not very wide. It's a choke point, and it is one of the most heavily traveled and critical, economically critical, waterways for the oil industry. A huge percentage of the oil that the world uses passes through the Strait of Hormuz. Now, because it's a choke point, and Iran controls the eastern shore. Iran has the ability to stop traffic in this waterway. This waterway is so narrow that the channels that the ships use is only two miles wide in each direction. That's a very small distance for these very large ships. And now that we have a little understanding about the geography. We now have the situation at hand. Iran is making mischief in the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman, which is south of the Strait of Hormuz. First, it started off by attacking four ships that were berthed at the port of the Arab Emirates. And then it took out an American surveillance drone from the skies over the Strait of Hormuz. They say it was flying over Iranian territory. America said that it was flying over international waters. And that's possible because this particular drone has the capability of looking sideways. So it could be over the Persian Gulf or the Gulf of Oman. Those are international waters and still see into Iran. But this is the drone that the Iranians took out. President Trump was seriously considering a retaliatory act, but at the last minute he decided not to because when he asked how many people would be killed and he was told 150, he decided that the casualty figure was too high and that, after all, it was only an unmanned drone that they took out of the sky. So he called back the attack and it never happened. Then Britain seized an Iranian supertanker near Gibraltar because it was defying the sanctions by carrying oil to Syria. As a result, Iran seized a British flagged ship and then seized two more in retaliation. And that it didn't end there. The United States took out an Iranian drone. It jammed its systems when it was flying less than a thousand yards away from its ship. 
Iran denied that it happened. The second ship that Iran seized, it released. But the third ship, the Steno Impero, it kept. A video surfaced that was released by Iran that showed the Iranian IRGC seizing the ship, abseiling onto it from a helicopter, and if you listen, a little after one minute, you can hear one of the IRGC terrorists shouting, Allahu Akbar! The British claimed that the tanker was in Omani waters when it was seized, and that it was seized illegally by the IRGC special forces. They also complained to the United Nations. We'll see what happens with that. In the meantime, President Trump has called on other countries to send their naval ships into the area to protect their ships and their investments from the Iranians. One of the most alarming things to have happened this past week is that the Iranians announced that they had arrested 17 Iranians whom they accused of spying on its nuclear and military sites for the CIA. According to their announcement, some of these people have already been sentenced to death. Nobody was named. The official who made the announcement was not named. And they didn't say how many of the 17 had been sentenced to death. This is an open story and we will be covering it and we will be covering it on future shows. This is what we know so far. What we do know, here, this is it. We know that every one of these incidents has been calculated to increase the threat and the danger of war between Iran and us. You know, so what does all this mean and where is it leading? Iran has clearly provoked a situation that has gone much further than any country in the West has wanted it to. Iran attacked four ships in the port of the United Arab Emirates. They put limpet mines on two other ships. They shot down an American drone and they seized three British tankers. And now they have arrested 17 Iranians whom they accuse of spying for the CIA. Where is this leading? The president doesn't want war. He's made that very clear. But he may not have a choice. If Iran keeps provoking, keeps attacking, keeps its aggressive posture, Oh, and by the way, I didn't tell you, but Iran is now talking about placing a toll on any ship that passes through the Strait of Hormuz. That is totally unacceptable because the Strait of Hormuz is international waters. But they do control that narrow passage, that narrow passage that leads from the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. So, there's a lot that's happening now, and we don't know what's happening next. Iran's game plan may not be based on oil, 
at all. Or sanctions. Or nuclear power. Iran's game plan might just be based on theology. I wrote an article for America Out Loud, it should be on this week, about how the Ayatollah and his mullahs really, truly believe that their Messiah, the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, will be coming soon. When Ahmadinejad was mayor of Tehran, he had the main street widened so that when the Mahdi comes, the street will be wide enough for his procession. This is something they believe fervently. But they believe something else as well. They believe that before the Mahdi comes, before the arrival of the 12th Imam, there will be a period of chaos. Now maybe, just maybe, and it's just a theory, maybe they think that by creating chaos, they will hasten the arrival of the Mahdi. It's a theory. Maybe. And if they do, if this is more than a theory, if this is true, if this is what is driving them, then we need to rethink how we are going to deal with this. Because with this dream in their minds, nothing is going to stop them. They have nothing to lose. In their view, people who die in the chaos, Muslims who die in the chaos, will go to paradise. And everybody else, who cares? Well, we have some very interesting days ahead of us. And even though they're on the other side of the world, and even though we do not want a war with them or anyone, we'll have to wait and see what they're going to do next so that we can know what we're going to do next. Well, here's a bit of a story that just came up as I was preparing for this show. Our friend, Rashida Tlaib, and by the way, a lot of people, most people, call her Talib. That's not it. If you look at the way her name is spelled, it's spelled T-L-A-I-B. We don't have a word in English that has those letters in that combination. It's Arabic. And the name is Tlaib. Tlaib. It's a nice sound on the tongue. Anyway, she has come up with an idea, with a plan, that what America needs is a $20 an hour minimum wage. Really? $20 an hour. Sounds good, you know. But it's going to break the bank and it's going to put an awful lot of business out of business. And it's going to put a lot of people out of work. $20 an hour is extraordinary for people who are flipping hamburgers, washing cars. It's not, it's not reasonable. It's not realistic. And as we mentioned before, when we were talking about Bernie Sanders' idea of $15 an hour that he wouldn't pay his own staff, <laughs> it just makes you wonder what, what these people are thinking. 
Tlaib does not have an idea in her head that makes any sense of economics. This is unsustainable. Towns will be full of empty stores and people will be out of work. It's a terrible thing. I, I wish I knew how to correct this malaise that is afflicting members of Congress. It comes down to this. She wants to pay people what she calls a living wage. And it's not based on the quality of their work or the nature of the work that they're doing. It's based on a number that she has pulled out of a hat that she thinks is necessary for people to survive on. But that's not the way our economy works. It's not the way any economy works. Not a successful economy. Communists tried it. The socialists tried it. Well, maybe that's the answer. But it won't work. It's not sustainable because those companies that cannot afford it, those smaller companies that cannot afford a $20 an hour minimum wage, they will go out of business. They will cut back hours. They will cut back days. They will put full-time workers on part-times in part-time positions. And they will lay off their workers and they will go out of business. It's that simple. $20 an hour sounds pretty good for the guy who's going to get it. But for the person who's going to pay it when there isn't enough income to justify it, that's the end of the road. So no, Rashida Tlaib, it is not a good idea. It's a stupid idea. I think you need to go back and do your homework. It's based on a subjective idea of what they call a living wage has to be in order for a person to survive. Well, of course, that depends on a lot of things. It depends on where you live. It depends on your lifestyle. It depends on what other resources you have. There are so many things. And yet, this is an arbitrary number that Tlaib has come up with somehow. And maybe it's just Tlaib being totally outrageous. Maybe she just wants to take some of that limelight away from Omar and Ocasio-Cortez and get a little of it for herself. Well, this is a way to do it. But it's the wrong way, because $20 an hour will put us back into a deep depression, because it will put so many people out of business, and there will be so many unemployed that there will be no hope for a very large percentage of the population in America. And that would be a crying shame. Just a quick question. You've heard it before. Do you agree with what I'm saying? Do you disagree? Would you like to share your opinion with me and the rest of the listening audience? Here's how you do it. Send me an email to Ilana 
at americaoutloud.com. That's it. I'd love to hear from you. Now I'm going to take another short break so that you can hear from the wonderful people at America Out Loud. But don't go away because I'll be right back with my friend and yours, Greg the Storyteller. And he's going to tell us some more about what it's like to be an American, a young American, in the Israeli Army. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, when I started this program and I started broadcasting the analysis of news, I started off by saying that life is, a, is an endless series of stories. And these stories are what make the fabric of our lives interesting, but that also uh, create a history from which we can learn. And uh, some of you may remember that one of my guests was Greg the Storyteller. And he told some stories that were illustrative of the kind of, uh, the kind of history, the stories in history, that can make the real difference if we listen to them. If we retell these stories, if we reread them and we learn from them, then we can keep from making the same mistakes that people made before us, but we can also learn how to do things differently so that we don't, we don't do the same things over and over and over again and suffer the same consequences. So I have with me today a guest who, with whom some of you will be familiar, and that is Greg, Greg the Storyteller. But we're going to do something a little different. Instead of just asking Greg to tell a story and then make some connections between the history that he's talking about and the stories of today, uh, I'm going to ask him a little bit about who he is and what his experiences have been, his life experiences, and what he makes of all this. So let me introduce you again 
to Greg the Storyteller. Hi Greg. Hi. Now instead of asking you to tell a story from history, which you have done before, I would like to do what we did last week, which was to ask you about your experiences when you were a young man in Israel. And the part of that story that I'd like to hear from you today is tell us some of your experiences as a young man in the Israeli army. Now this doesn't have to be about you, it has to be about something you observed or something that happened. You're a great storyteller, so so let's start with a story about your time as a young man in the Israeli army. Well, you know, you were reminding me of something from my time in the Israel Defense Forces. I mean, anybody who goes through basic training has all sorts of stories to tell, things that seem funny in retrospect that probably didn't seem at all funny at the time. One that comes to mind from the training base where I did my basic training. I could give the name, but it's not really important. This is in the mid-1980s. And we didn't have cell phones then. Nobody had cell phones then. But calling home was a priority, and there was exactly one telephone on the entire base that was a civilian line. You could just pick it up and dial and talk to your family at home. As you can imagine, we boots were not allowed to use that telephone without express permission, and we never got permission. Or I should say, getting permission to use that telephone was extremely rare. And we sometimes wondered what would happen if somebody did that dread thing and used the phone without permission. Well, one day we found out. Now, I should probably explain, this was not me. But believe me, we all heard this story. So somebody else in my basic training class used the phone without permission. And one of the corporal drill instructors took him out and took him to the firing range. Now, this kid is shivering in his boots already. You have to imagine that. It turns out the drill instructors were under strict orders not to hurt us. They were not even allowed to lay hands on us, but we didn't know that. So here he is at the firing range, and he has no clue what's happening next. The corporal takes him to the 100 meter range, and you can imagine there are targets 100 meters away, and they're numbered, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and so forth, so that you can be shooting your rifle at 100 meters, and you're told you're number five, you hit the number five target, don't you dare hit the number four target, and so forth and so on. Fine. So this poor recruit is taken to the 100 meter firing range, and the corporal demands to know what number did he dial when he used the phone without permission. And this guy wondering what's up, he recites the number, and the corporal just nods and writes it down on the little pad. And he starts screaming at him in Hebrew and says, Okay, soldier. You're going to dial that number now. You're going to run as fast as you can to the five and then run back. And then you're going to run as fast as you can to the three and run back. And you're going to keep on going until you've dialed your entire number. Now move! And this guy starts running and the corporal's screaming at him at the top of his lungs, Faster! 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 And you can imagine by the time he's gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, dialed his entire phone number, he's now run flat out for a couple of kilometers and his heart is pounding and his lungs are burning, and he's bent over double, and he just is panting there, and the corporal looks down at him with a pad of paper and says, Okay, soldier, you dialed your number. What was the answer? 
It was a busy signal, wasn't it? And this poor soldier is horror-stricken. He probably wants to laugh, but he, he doesn't dare. And he says, no, sir, no, no, it was, uh, um, uh, it was no answer, sir. There, there was no answer. There was nobody home, sir. Yes, we called our corporal, sir. Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, the corporal looks down at him and says, there was no answer. You're lying to me, soldier. You're lying. You forgot the area code. Do it again. And needless to say, we all heard that story, and none of us would ever use that phone without permission ever again. Do you want to tell the story about Aaron? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, maybe I'll just record a little bit here. Something that maybe one day you can use as a plug for my book. Okay. Because yes. I don't recall if I've mentioned, but some of these funny stories or serious stories or inspiring stories about the Israeli army. I am actually trying to write them down and collect them into a book. Uh, a book, believe it or not, of children's stories about the Israel Defense Forces, because these are stories that I told my kids at bedtime, and they loved them. And so just on the chance that there's a wider audience for them, here's a book you can look for. Here's another story from that book. They say that... Every course of basic training has one soldier who absolutely should not be there. This is the misfit. This is the royal mess up. This is the guy who can't do anything right. This is the guy who causes trouble for everybody else. And if you've ever been in basic training, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. And my course of basic training had that too. I think I will call him Aaron because that was his name. And Aaron was the one you could count on to get everything wrong. So if you can imagine, uh, here we all are burning the midnight oil and shining our boots to an absolute mirror shine and lining them all up in neat rows. And along comes Aaron, who doesn't pay attention to where he's going, and he steps all over all of them. Didn't make very many friends that day. Aaron was the one who did that. Aaron was the one who, while we we're all standing rigidly in ranks while there's a corporal screaming at us and we're all standing afraid of moving even the slightest bit afraid of incurring his further wrath of the corporal and in the middle of all of that the corporal pauses for breath and somebody farts loudly was that aaron of course that was aaron who else is it going to be and so forth and so on whenever there was a mess up that got us into more trouble it was aaron and the part of it that took the cake for me was one time when we were at the firing range. We were practicing uh, shooting at uh, the targets, uh, I think 25 meters range, from a prone position. That is to say, we were lying down facing the targets with our shiny American-made M16 rifles. We were under very, very strict orders as to how we should handle ourselves. We were going to lie down. That rifle does not move left. It does not move right. Not so much as an inch. It aims at the target. And when you're finished shooting, you raise it up to a 60-degree angle, and you wait for further orders. And we were told that if there is a jam in the rifle, if there's any sort of problem of any sort, you certainly do not get up. You certainly do not wave your rifle around. No, no, no. You stay prone. You leave your rifle right where it is. You leave it pointing right at your target. And you raise an arm, or you raise a leg, and one of the corporal instructors will come from behind you and will check out your rifle and help you fix the problem. Well, sure enough... Aaron had his rifle jam. Did he leave his rifle point at the target? No, he didn't. 
Did he stay prone? No, he didn't. Well, when he got to his feet, did he hold the rifle in a safe position? No, he didn't. Was he at least careful not to point it at anybody? No! Did he point the rifle at one of the corporal instructors, or God help us, did he point the rifle at a sergeant? No. He turned around with the rifle held at his hip, and he leveled it at our commanding lieutenant <laughs> with a round chambered, the safety off, probably on automatic, his finger on the trigger, and he said, Sir, I think I have a problem. And looking at it all these years afterwards, I think to myself, Yes, Aaron, you, yes, you definitely have a problem. If you didn't have one before, you definitely have one now. Full credit to my lieutenant. Uh, he I probably had a moment of just sheer terror at the M16 being leveled at him, and then he hit the dirt. Very nicely indeed. And it was one of the corporals who came from behind, disarmed him, and then started screaming at him, a process which would continue for quite some time. I lost track of Aaron after that. Last I heard, he was serving somewhere else in Israel as a military policeman. He was always getting into trouble. And uh, at one point I heard he actually wound up doing prison time because he decided to go out for a joyride in one of our military police vehicles. If you can imagine going for a joyride in a vehicle that says military police on both sides with the flashing blue lights and everything. He decided to take it for a joyride, except that he forgot to take off the handbrake. So there he is, in the car, without permission, burning rubber like nobody's business, and the car isn't moving anywhere. And he's probably wondering, why isn't the car moving? Until somebody in a position of authority comes out and asks him, Aaron, what on earth do you think you're doing? And they arrested him. What can I say? Some people never change. That is a great story. One more story. All right. So here I was in the Israeli army serving as a military policeman. And, by the way, a native English speaker, although that hardly ever came up. I remember one time when it did. I should explain that the Israeli army doesn't do things exactly the way the American military does, as you would probably expect. So, for example, I'm under the understanding that in the American military, if you want to venture off base, you better not even think of setting foot outside the base's limits unless you are dressed to the nines. And you'll get a talking to like nobody's business if you even think about it. The Israeli army doesn't work that way. If you get permission to leave the base, then nobody's going to look too carefully at how you're dressed. And it's up to the military police to enforce it later. And all of us hated that. It meant that occasionally we would be sent out in force to public places to enforce dress code violations. None of us liked writing tickets for soldiers with their shirt tails hanging out, but unfortunately that was part of the job. And on this particular day, here I was at the Jerusalem Central bus station, and I indeed see a young female soldier who gets off the bus with her shirt tails hanging out and her beret nowhere to be seen and looking disheveled in a couple of other ways. And I gave her a moment or two to see if she would straighten herself out, but she didn't. And so I went to her and addressed her politely in Hebrew, as I did, and asked her for her identification. And I thought at that point that I'd heard every excuse in the book, but she decided to open a new page of that book because she looked out, up at me with these great big eyes and spoke at me with badly broken Hebrew and a pronounced American accent saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a poor new immigrant and I, I hardly speak Hebrew at all and I, I really don't understand a word you're saying to me. And I just looked down at her 
and said, Oh boy, do you have the wrong policeman? And she looked up at me and said, Oh shit. From that point on, I have to admit, her Hebrew was just fine. And now I, 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 I did write the ticket for her. And, and as, at one point she looked up at me hopefully and said, um, maybe let me go anyway. I said, no way. I, I couldn't resist just twisting the knife a little bit. And I said, you do realize, don't you, that we're out in force today. And there are at least 30 military policemen out here. And you could have run into any of them. I'm the only native English speaker in this entire group. And you had to try that trick on me, didn't you? And she said, yeah, 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 yeah. Just write the ticket already, will you? Greg, it's been a pleasure having you on my show. And in fact, uh, our discussion is probably going to be spread out over several shows. This has been an interview that has gone on for over two hours. And I am very, very grateful for having you on the show. And well, Thank I you very will, much for having me. And I will be using significant parts of this interview on several shows in the near future. So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back here for the next few weeks and sharing your experiences with us. Now I'd like to change the subject dramatically and talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart. This is about 9-11, a day we will never forget. And the brave first responders volunteers who went down to ground zero in the days following the attack and helped to rescue those who miraculously survived and to uncover the remains of those who did not. I knew people, brave men, who went down to ground zero in the days following 9-11 and worked there after the greatest terrorist attack that America has ever faced. These men worked tirelessly. Their courage and determination and unwillingness to stop until the job was done. On Tuesday, July 23, 2019, the United States Senate overwhelmingly passed a bipartisan bill that will make sure that a special 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund will never run out of money. This fund is for those people who worked day after day until the job was finished. And then many of them suffered devastating illnesses as a result of their exposure to the toxic dust in the remains of those buildings. The fund was created after 9-11, but it was rapidly depleted. And recently, the administrators had to cut benefit payments by up to 70%. This bill will extend through 2092, and it will ensure that those brave first responders and volunteers who came to Ground Zero and breathed in that toxic dust will be taken care of for the rest of their lives. So hats off to the United States Senate that came together to do the right thing and pass this bill to make this happen. And our thoughts and prayers to all those brave men and women who gave their all at ground zero after 9-11. God bless them and keep them safe. 
Well, that's the end of our program for today, my friends. Thank you for spending this last hour with me. I look forward to seeing you again next week. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.